Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some box office update news for Love Off the Cuff, some news out of cans on streaming films, and we're going to be looking at Andy Lau's latest in Shockwave and the newest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about a film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from a cross-harbor tunnel is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there, Paul. How's it going? All right, sir. How are you doing? Uh, incredibly exhausted. <laughs> um, I, I've been battling um, a lot of jet lag and, and also uh, just a ton of various work outside of work so mm. i've taken uh, quite a bit of uh, a lot of writing jobs uh and they're taking up way more time than i expected so so i was just taking a nap just before we recorded at 10 p.m that's how tired i was right so if that sound you hear coming across your speaker ladies and gentlemen is a little bit of snoring please bear with mr ma because he's a tired fellow after all the traveling and working that he's been doing and we will bear with him indeed um, also, your weather's not been so great as I've been following along with the Hong Kong news. Well, well, apparently the weather is great because the the air, the polluted air from China, made its way down to Hong Kong. So something is working in the atmosphere, right? I yeah. mean, air is moving. Um, but, That's not good no, air, we, right? That's not great air. So we've had a, a day or two. I mean, um, so every year there's a sandstorm in China and up in the north, and it hits Korea, and it hits Japan. And that is not the air that's hit Hong Kong, but it just tells you what happens um, when you have polluted air in China, um, whether it's from a sandstorm or it's from the factories. They all end up floating to their neighbors. And a um, couple of days ago, of course, that kind of bad air reached Hong Kong once again. I mean, Hong Kong air has been getting worse. I mean, back here for ten years, and and it's getting it's gotten progressively worse in the past decade. Um, and you know, I, I was just saying to Paul, it, it was just one of those days where you walk outside and you can see the air, and you just don't want to inhale. Yes, you got to take the the Bill Clinton position, right? Didn't inhale. Well, <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, I, I believe some people would take the Gene Hackman in uh, in a Crimson Tide position. Is I don't trust air I can't see. Mm, there you go. Which is not not really the wisest way to live, I think. But maybe just that is uh, get some scuba gear and walk around with uh, with a tank. Uh, the the interesting thing though is because you have the the handover, you know, this historic handover date approaching. I'm wondering if they're going to do what they often do up in Beijing, right, when they have uh, big celebrations and visiting dignitaries and all that stuff. They usually do some stuff like seeding the clouds and shutting down the factories to make sure that uh, skies are blue and everything looks great, right? Um, has there any been any discussion of anything like that perhaps happening? Well, they have to stop all of Guangzhou's factories, and I don't think Hong Kong matters to them that much to, to you know, to get in the way of economic prosperity in, mm. in China. It's not like a big it's not like a big um uh celebration where they have foreign well not celebration, but it's not like a big meeting where they have foreigners coming in and they have to present a nice nice Beijing. I mean I think all we getting we're getting one of the top levels, uh top members of government here during the visit and of course they're closing off roads and blah blah. But um no it would be a bit ridiculous. Of course I would love it if it happens to rain that day, <laughs> as it did on it hand, a, handover day, right? It is. A, it is a rainy season, you know, yeah. in the summer. So you never know. I mean, I would love that, you know. Yeah, maybe you get a typhoon. Who knows? Uh, it, it will be during that period, so we'll have to wait and see. But we are not here to talk about the weather. We are here, in fact, to talk about films. So before we get into our two reviews for this episode, let's talk about some news. So let me throw the talking stick back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. 
here at the news desk, kind of a slow news week. Um, so the only thing that I'll really talk about is the box office for Love Off the Cuff, the film that we talked about last week. Uh, the film has made uh, in just in under two weeks, so about 10 days or so, it's already made uh, 25 million Hong Kong dollars. So making it um, the top grossing uh, Hong Kong film of the year. Uh, already beating uh, Journey to the West, uh, uh, what was it, Demon Strike Back, the uh, the sequel to the Stephen Chow film. Um, so that, well, that's great for Pound Chan. Uh, it will likely pass. Uh, last week I said that Bulgaria made $40 million. Uh, I apologize. It was actually $30 million, which uh, it remains Pound Chan's highest grossing film. And um, if things go well, uh, it seems like that um, Bluff Off the Cuff will be passing that mark this weekend. So it will not like it's not it's likely that it will not only be uh, the highest grossing film Chinese language film of the year uh, at least for some time. It will also be Pao Chen's uh, highest grossing film of his career. Um, and you know, as a Pao Chen fan, you know, as a guy who watched him making films that make only one or two million to now being this box office, you know, presence making thirty, forty million dollars. Hong Kong dollars, um, it's it's kind of a bittersweet sight, you know, because he was this 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 altair who took a lot of risks, and now he's become this sort of smart ass who just makes smart ass commercial movies and and being really amused by it. So um, it's good for him. It's good for the Hong Kong film industry, but also really sad because it turns out that the Lunar New Year film did so badly that the highest grossing film only made less than half of what Mermaid did uh, two years ago or last year. But uh, anyway, that's that's the reality of the industry. Uh, and congratulations to Pao Chen and his crew. All right, excellent. I am still looking forward to seeing this, despite the sort of commercial tinge uh, that it has onto it. And I'm also always anxious for any new films to come from Bang Ho Chung. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm somebody. I think I'm a bit like Kevin. I like his stuff that's a little bit more avant-garde, a little bit more daring. Though I am. Certainly not an art house film lover myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, good on him for having it be so successful, and hopefully this can fund future innovative projects uh, from his from his uh, studio. Bit of film news out of Cannes now. Yes, um, apparently we have a dead fish here. So <laughs> I have to take my stick out. Dead and... fish or a dead horse or, or something's dead, dead and smelly, yeah, right? Yeah, dead, dead horse. Yeah, sorry, we have a dead horse, not a dead fish. Pardon my confusion. See, this is a jet lag. I'm bleeding this on a jet lag, not my <laughs> terrible English. Okay, so uh, it's not a Hong Kong film news, um, but this is something that we've talked about before, and this, you know, is a Netflix discussion. Um, uh, two Netflix films this year uh, got into the Cannes competition this year. Um, we talk about the Noah Bombach film and also the Bang Joon Ho film Okja. Uh, now, Okja is, uh, is already has a release date for Netflix. It will, it will hit the global streaming site on June 28th, I believe. And it will premiere uh, on the Quasette uh, sometime during the festival, um, which actually opens next weekend. Um, but uh, what is there's a controversy because now um, the French, they like to see the films that play in Cannes. Uh, they like to see that get released in the cinema. Um, the trouble is that uh, there's a law in France to essentially protect the sanctity of the cinema. Um, any film that that gets a theatrical release in France cannot play on a streaming site for three years, which means that uh, uh, um, Netflix has pretty much um, ensured that uh, both the Noah Bambach film and Okja will never be seen in French cinema, and the only way to see it is to get a Netflix subscription. Um, this irked, uh, first of all, the the, the network of uh, French cinemas, the because you know, like I said, they they like to see the the film that playing can get theatrical releases uh, because they think there's an interest in the country, and and it and uh, yeah, they find that the entire idea of a film that gets into, you know, the prestigious can competition goes straight to your computer. They find that uh, insulting, pretty much. Uh, so, after the controversy, uh, the Cannes Film Festival has um, pretty much, uh, well, they, they, they can't change the lineup now. I mean, the programmers worked very hard to put together that program, so they say, uh, and they haven't been able to work out a, um, 
a, a, a compromise with Netflix. So Netflix, for, for, for a time, they were contemplating doing a limited release in French cinema and, and letting that – and, they, of course, they would have to follow the law, which means that those, those films wouldn't be able to get to a wider audience in at least France for another three years. But apparently they, have, they, 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 they couldn't find a compromise, and the film will – premiere on netflix uh release on netflix as planned uh and they won't be getting theatrical releases in Cannes after their their play at the festival um and can in response has uh essentially committed that any film that plays in the competition lineup so not in the out of competition for example twin peaks is playing out of competition this year and no one's complaining about that because well it's tv and also top of the lake the uh james compton series uh uh, series. No one is also playing a competition on the big screen, but again, no one's um, complaining about that either. Which, by the way, both of those breaks break Cannes' uh, long, really long-running rule about not having TV or television shows on their screens. Because, but you know, they've kind of had to bend because now you know TV is like the new art house for 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 all tears. But anyway, the film festival has announced that any films starting next year, any films that want to get into the competition has to quote unquote commit to a release in French cinemas. Which I assume uh, well I don't think you have to have secured a French distribution deal, but I think what they're saying is that you cannot have a global streaming release 2 months after you play in Cannes if you want to be in the competition. Um, now first of all, they're just following the law. So you can't really blame Can, uh, and they don't want to piss off the the network of cinemas because they have to. They are such a big part of that local film industry that they do have to please uh, as many sides as possible. Um, and and I think that there is some merit to the French law. Um, I think that that films are essentially made to be seen on the big screen, and France being this, you know. The, well, the leading nations of the, the cinematic arts, I think that it's kind of neat that they have a rule, a law that protects the sanctity of the cinema experience. Um, now, whether three years is too harsh of a period to to be put on a film, that's up for discussion, I think. I think the new um, newly elected president, Emmanuel Macron, he's also mentioned that he would re-examine that law um, after being elected. I, I think he's been is he? I'm not sure if he's been uh, um, uh, sworn already, but anyway, he's mentioned that he will look into the law. Um, but I think I kind of I kind of appreciate that there's something a law like that protecting the film, uh, the cinema. But Paul, I think of course you're gonna side with Netflix on this, right? Well, I mean, I can see both sides of it. However, three years is way too long. I mean, way too long to yes. keep a film in limbo. I, I think the maximum that I would find acceptable would be a year because then you can, you know, talk about a film, you know, being in competition at cons and then going over to other festival circuits throughout the course of a year. But longer than that, you are really punishing the filmmakers by keeping their film in this state of limbo. And you're also punishing the audience from them, you know, cause I mean, what film, no film is going to run for that long. Um, it's going to run for what? I mean, how long? I don't know how long film film runs are in France and Hong Kong. You know, they're often ridiculously short. Some films don't even last a week. Um, you know, you're talking about an art house film, so we're thinking something like, you know, a Wong Kar Wai or, or something like that. But even so, to say that, okay, so for three, three years, you are just, you know, not able to have anything to do with new media. That seems pun- more punishing than you know, protective in my, in, from my perspective, I mean, especially when you, when you've got things, you know, I mean, not to, I I know that, that Khan is a very different and sort of high art experience, but when you've got other things like, you know, you've got uh, organizations like Comic-Con now that are almost full on streaming, you you can sign up for their, I think it's called Comic-Con HQ or something both independently and through services like Amazon, where you don't have to even attend Comic-Con. You can see the panels live. You can see um, premiere releases through the app, you know, that are partnered with Comic-Con now. So it's sort of this new mode of of thinking. And, yeah, that's pop culture versus sort of art culture, and I get it. But I I, I still, if, you know, they would, were to ask me 
as sort of a common guy, and I know they won't, but three years is really way too long. Well, three years is a bit long, but I, and and actually, I don't know if the law. I of course, this also protects the home video market because um, I'm not sure if there's still a home video market in France, but I think the law doesn't apply to home video releases, obviously. And the real question is, does it apply to a paid street? Uh, paid video on demand service say like itunes or let's say the local television on demand services um is this to also protect the those, those local services is this law does this law only apply to unlimited streaming service services like like netflix now um last year amazon actually had a huge blast at the film festival at the Cannes film festival they had like three or four films at a festival at different sections. And the reason that Amazon doesn't have this problem is, one, they don't have a market in France. Only mar- only Netflix does. Amazon Prime is mainly just America-based. And two, they've actually gotten much more industry acceptance because they do play along this game. So in the U.S., uh, Amazon Films, Amazon Studio Films, they get a they get theatrical release first, an exclusive theatrical release window. Um then they put it out, um, and the, the only advantage of having Amazon holding films is that they're more. They would likely put their films in the unlimited streaming Amazon Prime service a bit earlier than uh, than than say uh, a pay TV. Um, then so so they would get a small window for for paid uh, for video on demand. Uh, so iTunes or even you know paid rental on Amazon, and then they would quickly end up on uh, Amazon Prime. So they've gotten a lot more industry acceptance, and 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 unlike Netflix, Netflix hasn't had one film uh, nominated because they can't in theatrical releases because theaters are punishing them for their global release strategy, even in the U.S. And uh, interest, and also actually the Academy also um, has a similar rule. Um, they say that I think uh, to be eligible, the films cannot be shown on free-to-air television um, uh, before, you know, before they're made available to a wider audience. And in that way also protects, uh, again, the sanctity of the cinema experience. All right. Well, if you have some thoughts on this whole sort of Netflix Netflix streaming or whatever versus uh, the sort of art house film festivals or, you know, this ruling from Cannes and you would want to share some thoughts with us, please do Drop us a line and let us know what you think. All right, let's take a short musical interlude, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Herman Yao's latest film, Shockwave. And welcome back to our East Green Review this week. Kevin's going to be taking us through Andy Lau's latest, Shockwave. That's right. Uh, Shockwave is the latest film by Herman Yao, and more importantly, the force of nature that is Mr. Andy Lau. Um, Mr. Lau produces the film, uh, and if you see the making of, he practically acts like the co-director <laughs> of the film on set. He's also the star, of course. Um, anyway, the uh, story, um, Andy Lau plays Jun Choi-san, a uh, senior inspector in the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Bureau of the Hong Kong Police Force. Years ago, he went undercover into a gang led by crime boss Pang, played by Zhang Wu. That's Zhang Wen's brother. Jen, um, Joy-san successfully uproots the gang and arrests um, several members, including Pang's younger, younger brother. However, Pang escapes and swears that he'd be back for revenge. Several years have passed, and um, Joy-san is back in the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Bureau, but Pang has also returned to start his plan of revenge, starting with a series of bomb threats that sparks fear among Hong Kong citizens. The series of threats culminates in a final daring plan, a total takeover of Hong Kong's Central Harbor Tunnel. Um, now, 
okay, before I get into the whole story, um, for those outside Hong Kong, Central Harbor Tunnel was the first cross-harbor tunnel built in Hong Kong. It was built in the 1970s. And um, the way that the, the tunnels work is that we have three, I think, three cross-harbor tunnels. That's right. Uh, and the second one was built in the, the late 80s. And a fourth one was, uh, a third one was built in the late late 90s. Uh, but however, because of the um, crazy prices, uh, the toll prices of the other two newer tunnels, uh, many cars still flock to the Central Harbor Tunnel because it remains the cheapest. Um, and of course, it's the most central. It's, it, it gets you to the uh, the most populous area. Most, you know. uh, so the idea of terrorists uh taking over this this very important crossing is a huge deal to to hong kong people logically if you think about it a bomb disposal expert going undercover is kind of like sending an it guy to take down someone who's saying by sending a virus into his apple computer um that's an independence day reference <laughs> if you don't know um it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense and we buy it because you know it's it's freaking andy lao right so he can do anything and and he does this whole, whole super cop ad uh throughout the film most of the film is about the little crisis and on a production level it's a real wonder to behold because obviously they can't close the real tunnel so what they did was that they built a pretty much to scale uh model of the real tunnel entrance uh, in a more sort of desolated area of the the city, and it was all over the news, and it's really impressive set because um, they they don't really do they do the backgrounds and everything on green screen, but if you look at the the making of, they actually do build that uh, the Hong Kong entrance. So Paul, you're you're probably more familiar once I talk about the Hong Kong entrance, which is quite huge if you think about it. Um, However, uh, even though the film is called Bomb Disposal Expert in Chinese, there's really not much bomb disposing. I mean, lot, lots, of, lots of that comes in the first 30, 40 minutes of the film. There's some stuff with Andy sending, wearing a bomb suit, arming, you know, old wartime bombs, and um, there's a bit of that. But at the end of the day, it's really a, a hostage crisis movie, a terrorist movie. And the truth tunnel crisis actually is really quite a master stroke to uh, anyone who lives in Hong Kong is familiar with the situation with the, the, the tunnels and uh, when I was at Udine I watched this film at Udine me and maybe the three other Hong Kongers in the audience laughed out loud when we heard about that 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 twist um, so Andy Lau is essentially playing Andy Lau the performer um, he's heroic he's charming and he's Andy Lau as hell there's a, a scene uh, at the beginning of the film where uh, he steps up to a stage to give a speech and points to his friends in the audience like he's Andy Lau um, and and it and his hair of course like in Firestorm, uh, Firestorm his hair is always perfect in any any crisis um, essentially it, it, it is a quintessential Andy Lau film um, and Andy Lau's presence is so overwhelming that his character sucks the backstory out of all the other characters. Um, so Song Jia, uh, a female, uh, a mainland China Chinese actress, uh, plays his girlfriend. And she's fine. Uh, Philip Kern is solid as a fellow cop. Uh, there's a bit of, um, I think there's a bit of hint of uh, post-traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder in his character, and that's a little bit of an interesting touch. Baby John Choi uh, plays one of the hostages, and he has one great scene, and so does Louis Chen, who plays also plays one of the hostages, and he also has one great line in the film. Um, and But then, what about the others? You have um, Ron Eng, who is a pretty major TVB star, playing um, essentially Andy Lau's deputy, and and all he does, he's a, he's a profound, he's just like a a plot device. He doesn't have any character. Doesn't have a backstory. Uh, who are these people? No one else has a backstory. Okay, the bad guy. You understand? He has, he has a grudge. Uh, but then you know you have Liu Kaichi who plays like an evil tycoon, and then you have the other people. You know who are they? And then cops who are backing up, um, backing up Andy Lau's character. Who are these people? And and there's just no time for character because there's so much plot. Um, and it's really hard to get distract, uh, not to be distracted by the illogical stuff in the storytelling, um, starting with the whole undercover cop in a in a the bomb disposal cop in an undercover, and then you have it just sort of builds up until the very end. Um, so it's a very ambitious project in terms of uh, production wise, but made with a very myopic worldview. It doesn't. It, it kind of lives in its own logical bu- logic bubble, without really thinking about anything else. It's an interesting idea. The idea that you know such a big, um, 
uh, road in Hong Kong shut down? How does it affect the rest of the city? We don't really see any of that. We get we get news stories about it, but um, we don't directly see the impact it has on the city. Um, but which is a kind of big deal. I mean, it, everything in Hong Kong is when subway line breaks down. It actually a month ago, one major subway line broke down during evening rush hour, and it caused such a chain reaction that it caused uh, traffic jams and pack stations on the other side of the city. And that's how big sort of these chain reactions are, because Hong Kong is such a connected city in terms, and so everything depends on everything sort of working perfectly. So when one gear breaks down, everything else sort of breaks down uh, in the reaction. So you don't get any of that. You don't really get a sense of a Hong Kong city. Um, and but then that's sort of my own obsession, right? I, I kind of get into that kind of stuff, but and, and might not be what you're looking for if you're just looking for an action film about terrorist terrorist crisis. Uh, still, it's a must see for Andy Lau fans. It is a very Andy Lau esque movie, but um, I find it hardly a top ten worthy film. So uh, there it is. There you go, Shockwave. Hmm. Interesting. You know, um, I do think that uh, the the idea of you know shutting down the cross harbor tunnel is definitely interesting as a plot device and i'm reminded of you know you were talking about some of the mtr shutdowns i'm reminded of the what when was it a couple years back when um, the tsingma bridge got hit by a ship and they shut the thing down and when that was shut down it was like very reflective of this idea that okay this is affecting a lot of people because suddenly you have all these people out on Lantown who cannot get over you know to Hong Kong and the airport's over there and there was all this discussion about should they have another route and you know what should be done if there was an actual terrorist attack and and to my knowledge nothing really ever, ever came of it you know they had committees and they had discussions and dialogues and to date nothing's really been done right um yeah I was kind of caught up in that last year, actually. I remember flights, some of the flights were delayed because the airport, that was the only really major route to the airport. People were advised to take a boat to the to us, to Lantown and take a bus. It would take another hour to get across the island. But, you know, that wasn't really... Yeah, I remember being caught up because no trains, no cars. It was like it, it turned Lantown into an island again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's not something that's really, I guess, directly ripped from the headlines, but I guess it does sort of play into some of that political commentary that Herman Yao can be known for um, as he, as he takes up, you know, very localized issues. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of films he's done like something like split second murders, right. Which had a lot of sort of subtle commentary about stuff that's going on. Does this film take it to that level or is it pretty much more straightforward as an actioner? No, it's very much a police procedural film, um, and Andy Lau, I mean, sorry, uh, Herman Yao has said himself that the film is, well, it kind of, he, 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 he alluded that, he said directly that the film is dedicated to cops' altruism and to police police officers who do the right thing and who who protect, you know, risk their lives, protect their citizens, and I think he was saying in a way that, that, a lot of Hong Kong police officers aren't doing that anymore these days. In yeah. in a way, I think he was slyly kind of suggesting that. But if you watch this film, of course, you would think the Hong Kong police are like the greatest people ever. So, <laughs> so, so it's hard yeah. to read read what he wants to say if you don't hear him say it the way that he says it. Um, but no, I mean, if you just watch it on, on its own, it's a pretty straightforward uh, films of heroic cops and altruism and self sacrifice and things like that. Right. So remember that, protesters, when you were out trying to do your thing on July 1st, um, carry a can of Pepsi and give it to a police officer because it'll make everything <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you went there. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Um, still, nonetheless, it is an Andy Lau film, so this is a must-see for me. And it was playing down at the five-hour commitment down in Miami, but um, just not going to have time to make it down there, unfortunately. So it's going to have to be either streaming or... Um, a, a long shipped DVD from uh, Yes Asia, and I, Yes Asia, I love you. You know, I, I love you guys, but your shipping to the U.S. takes forever. Can I just say that it just takes way too long <laughs> for them to process my orders? And I know, know I live on the completely the opposite side of the earth, um, but it's a long, long time. Anytime I place an order there, um, but, but you have to blame the U.S. 
customs for that one. But yeah, it, yeah. speaking of someone who worked in just Asia, we know that it's part it's mostly because it get, always gets stuck in U.S. customs and sending anything through U.S. customs is a real pain. So yeah, I'll do I, add I, that. I can imagine. I can imagine. But I know it will get to me eventually, uh, as my previous orders have. So I'm looking forward to seeing this film when and if uh, I can get a hold of it. All right, let us take a short break from our uh, Andy Lau goodness. And when we return, we'll be talking about the latest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. And welcome back. For our West Screen film this week, we're back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it progresses forward to sort of their big bash, which I think is coming in about two more years um, with uh, the sort of Infinity storyline coming to its sort of fruition. Here, we're back to visit uh, the sort of outlier of the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe so far with the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Once again, bringing together, um, you know, uh, Star-Lord and Gamora and Drax and Rocket Raccoon and Groot uh, among a cast of others. Um, This time when the Guardians cross a race known as the Sovereign, they soon find themselves being hunted across the galaxy. During the ensuing chase, Peter Quill is located by a being known as Ego, who claims to be his father. While Peter sorts out his daddy issues, Rocket and Groot find themselves stuck in the middle of a Ravager mutiny, and Gamora has to deal with her sister Nebula, who is hell-bent on revenge. Um, So that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Um, Other sort of reviews and podcasts that I've listened to on the film have basically stated that this is, you know, more of the same, basically, which is a good thing. So if you've liked the first Guardians of the Galaxy, you get uh, an extended version of what you saw in the first film. So you should like this. It's not better. It's not new. It's not really innovative outside of a couple small places, perhaps. Um, It is simply just more of the same. So... For me, as a space opera sort of cosmic tale, I find it a bit more appealing than some of the standard Marvel fare. So if you're somebody like me who's a bit of a science fiction nerd, um, you are like Star Wars, you like Star Trek, that kind of stuff, this is a good divergence from the standard sort of, okay, superhero in a suit kind of thing that many of the other Marvel films provide for us. Um you know, so as I say, it's more akin to Star Trek than Tony Stark. And for some in the audience, that can be a good thing. Because I think we're at a point in time where we're really starting to get ramped up on superhero overload. Um, as the t- At the time of recording this, I've seen at least two or three new Marvel-related television series that are going to be dropped. One is... Um, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's going to be based in the X-Men universe, and it's being helmed by Brian Singer. The other is, there's another one called The Runaways, which is part of the Marvel universe, and then you've got Cloak and Dagger, um, which is which are sort of offshoot characters from that, and there's this whole disconnect now in the Marvel universe where things are all happening kind of in the same, but they're not part of the same storylines, such as the, you know, we're building up to the Defenders on Netflix this this summer. So there's a lot of stuff going on. In the midst of this too, you've got, I think, new on the DC side, new DC shows coming. One of the DC shows, Powerless, which was sort of a comedic take, um, got canceled uh, early on. So I think we're at that tipping point where people are starting to have a little bit too much on the superhero plate. But something like this feels very, very different. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I, I will add that when I went to the screening here in the States, they had a really extended trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming, which I was very excited for. 
until I kind of saw this extended trailer and they kind of basically showed the entire movie, the, the sort of three acts. So it's like now I know the story, I'm kind of less excited about it. Um, and this is a problem, I think, that other other films have had and now Marvel's kind of falling into that trap, which I think is not necessarily um, a good thing. So we're at this point, but I think for Guardians of the Galaxy, it still remains a bit of an outlier that you won't feel that as much here because it's, it's so very different. Um, in comparison with the first film, the characters here get better overall arcs because we're beyond the sort of origin story which is great. Um, we get Peter's background and his daddy issues. You get more development of the relationship between Gamora and Nebula. And can I say that Karen Gillan as Nebula really kills it here? She didn't really have much to do in the first film, and they develop her out further here and get more into her backstory and her relationship with Gamora, and I think that part was a big highlight for me. And so does Michael Rooker as Yondu. Again, People love Michael Rooker from his roles in things like The Walking Dead, and so seeing him on the big screen as this big blue alien was nice, but he was just kind of there as a bit of a foil in the first film, and here he gets this arc which really brings more depth and dimension to his character and his kind of past relationship with um, Peter Quill, and also, you know, ideas about redemption and, and things, and they're worked in very well here. Um and we have Kurt Russell here as Ego. Um, Kurt Russell's a very iconic actor. And for me, it was great to see him kind of come back to the Disney fold a little bit. I think the last Disney film he might have been involved in was Sky High, which I've always felt is an underrated film. Um, it's something that I've gone back to again, and I still have fun with it. Um, and Kurt Russell, you know, he was he was an up-and-comer through Disney in, in the early Disney films that he did. And so it's kind of neat to see him come back via the Marvel property here. But his role as Ego may be hard to swallow for some in the general audience because it's a very weird character. Um, but for comic nerds like me, it's really a moment of pure joy. And this is really highlighted in sort of one sequence where they do a shot of his planet and what that looks like. It's really just drawn straight out of the comic books. And back when they did um, the character of Galactus in uh, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, way back when, um, you know, that was a way, that was a, a movie that didn't know how to handle cosmic entities like these characters, like Ego and Galactus. And this film showed that it can be done, and it can be done in a way that still, you know, it's fantastic, but it also feels like it fits within the cinematic universe. And so I was very pleased with that. Um, I almost giddy at some points when, when they were doing that, uh, what they did with his character. Um, but it's not a perfect film. Some of the humor does feel forced. It really felt like they were trying to ramp up the humor and perhaps a bit too much for my taste. I mean, it's a fun film. It's a funny film at times, but some of it really feels like they were, you know, just kind of whipping the writers. Come on, be funnier, be funnier. And it doesn't come off as super funny, or at least as funny as I was expecting it to be at times. Um, but beyond that, there are some interesting moments they choose in some places to focus on things besides the action. You know, in a big spectacle summer film, you expect there to be a lot of explosions and a lot of fightings. But sometimes they're focusing on character moments and action is happening in the background which I think is a, is a very interesting and, and a choice that works well, especially sort of in the opening sequence when they're rolling the credits. There's this big kind of thing that's going on, but it's really kind of relegated to the background. And, you know, I can imagine that being a hard choice to sell to, you know, some producers thinking, no, we got to show, uh, you know, all this exciting stuff going on rather than showing that in the background and this, you know, sort of smaller thing happening in the foreground. Um, so it's an interesting kind of reversal uh, in terms of some of the decisions that summer movies tend to go with. That being said, there's still quite a bit of action and, you know, lots of splody, splody stuff that's happening um, throughout. Um, many comic book cameos and one significant Hong Kong film cameo that pop up that I'm not going to spoil here. Um, I think for the general audience, it's not going to make a lick of sense who these people are. But for comic book nerds, it's going to make them squeal. 
Um, and especially if it, as it alludes to, if it goes further, um, it seems to be setting the stage for something else. And that could be good. Although the person who's at the center of that, I'm kind of like, eh, really? Uh, him? Okay. Uh, but um, beyond that, you know, it would be exciting to see sort of a spinoff occur if, if, if that's what they're kind of driving at. And that's what it feels like, because based on the length and the duration of the cameos and the scenes they set up, it seems like that's the direction they want to go. Um, in terms of new characters, aside from uh, Kurt Russell as Ego, um, we have a new character in the form of Mantis. And I, I'll try and get her name correctly. It's played by actress Palm Clementif, I think. She is a Eurasian um, actress by origin, and I think her heritage is uh, half Korean and half French, if I'm, I'm correct. Um, there's been some discussion about her role as being portrayed as kind of the subservient Asian, and I could I didn't get that sense coming out of the film. I mean, they kind of play her as the uh, as sort of a ditzy empath character, and you see this in the trailer. Um, she's an important character in, in the context of a few of the plot points of the story. I was a bit disappointed that she was kind of as submissive as they portrayed her, because as from what I know of the character from comic books, she's a bit more action-oriented. I mean, she's... She can fight, and 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 she's. I was expecting her to, at some moment, sort of cast off the the sort of submissive role they had played placed on her, and and you know throw in a surprise or something. And they didn't really do that, and that that I think was a little bit disappointing. But perhaps there is uh, some room for you know further development of that character in a, another film. There's quite a bit of self-reflective humor too, uh, making fun of kind of the some of the lamer aspects of of comic books uh, there's a character who goes by the name Taserface who's also kind of pulled directly out of comics and they have some fun is at that character's expense in terms of the name um, so you know it's not afraid to make fun of itself and the genre that it's pulled from at times and and that sort of keeps it light and fun as well there are many many credit sequences throughout the credits um so you know just be prepared to stay all the way to the end i'm not sure if this is a world record for the number of credit sequences they have but there are a lot they really threw in um more than the average you know the average marvel film has kind of a mid-credit sequence and an end credit sequence this had i, I want to say three or four thrown in there um so yeah it's a big it's funny at times summer movie more of the same if you like the first one, you know, so grab some popcorn and have at it. If you didn't like the first one, you're probably not going to like this one. Um, if you didn't see the first one, you don't necessarily need to watch it. It's, I mean, it's good to know where these characters are coming from, but they kind of get into a little bit of the backstory anyway. So you can approach this one with some fresh eyes. Um, but why would you want to do that? Uh, that you know i i wouldn't want to do that but that's just me so if you've got some time to kill and you want to go see it and haven't seen the first one you know you can go for it and have a good time uh kevin have you seen volume two uh yes yes and i actually well i was sleeping a little bit because <laughs> i had a jet lag but i enjoyed actually because of the first film um i kind of had that same problem with you paul about um spider-man is that I had seen so many clips of it because I was looking forward to the first film so much. I, I, I had seen a lot of clips and I was hoping that I would get to see a lot of stuff that would go beyond that. And actually it didn't really much do much. So I, I, I kind of had really high expectation for the first film. It wasn't completely met, although I really liked it. Um, so I, I actually kind of was delighted that the second film surprised me more because um, I didn't see there weren't much clips of it available online um, because they don't really have to, you know, convince the audience to show up anymore. Um, so they kept more to themselves. And I liked that a lot. And I was quite surprised, not surprised, but I was really I liked it a lot. Baby Groot is awesome. Baby Groot is awesome. I'll just say that twice. Um and I even like the new characters, like you said, like Nebula. Is that the name? Yes. Or was sorry, the the book. 
Amantis. The Amantis, yes, yeah, sorry, I like Mantis, and uh, of course the, the 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 dynamic between the the, the old characters are great, um, and it's cool to see the um, sort of minor characters from the first film get much bigger moments here, like I said, Vondu and and Nebula, uh, they get much bigger uh, moments in this this installment. Um, so I like how James Gunn is is sort of building on it, but also keeping what people liked about it. So all these complaints about what he you know how he didn't take it further i'm like but you guys like the first film what do you guys want you guys want like a dark night if guardians of the galaxy suddenly went dark you're not gonna like it anyway you like it because it has a you know it's comic is it's comical and doesn't take itself as seriously as say iron man or captain america so what else do you people want um so for, for the same kind of reason that people railed against the film i kind of liked it because it is um uh the stuff that I liked from the first film. So I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I think the problem is, is that the first film kind of, you know, it came from out of nowhere and it, it you know, was beyond what people were expecting up to that point because, you know, you'd had the Thors, you'd had the the Iron Mans and uh, the Avengers films, and this was something that was had very different in tone and style. And in kind of setting the bar at that level, I guess people want, even more, right? Um, and I, I think that they, you know, they did fine in achieving the bar again. I'd say I enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed the first one. And, you know, it didn't need to do much more. It could have, I mean, but then you run the risk of, again, doing something so different than people are like, well, why did you do that, you know? Um, so it's a very difficult line to straddle, I'm sure, as a, a creator, a writer, a filmmaker. Um, but the main thing to take away that m my takeaway from this was, you know, how you can take characters that you really didn't care about, you know, in, in the first film. Because in the first film, it's really about the core group. You take these sort of supporting characters and you kind of give them arcs that kind of make you feel for them, right? I mean, um, again, with the Nebula character and the Yandu character, or even, um, you know, um, I, I forget the character's name, but... Uh, James Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn, he he plays one of the, the Ravagers. And he, even he, you know, has kind of a little arc within the story that makes you kind of go, hey, you know, that's that character's, you know, got some depth. He's got some, you know, uh, he, he's a bit more than just your standard sort of two-dimensional supporting character, right? Um, so So all of that I thought was, you know, interesting enough for me to really make me enjoy those smaller moments. More so, you know, as much than, or more so than sort of the big splody splody, um, you know, CGI moments. And there's a lot of CGI in this film. There's a lot of green screening going on in the backgrounds and stuff. And that's all fine. Um, you know, Rocket's great as a character, you know, who I guess is kind of, he's the equivalent of what uh, this generation's Gollum, right? I mean, who, who thought you would care about a talking raccoon? Um, <laughs> but you kind of do, right? And and it works. Or talking, tr or talking tree. Or a talking tree, you know, who, uh, and, you know, dances, which is all all good and all great fun. So, again, you know, it's there. See it if you if you like it, and let us know what you thought. If you if you don't like it, if it doesn't appeal to you, um, you know, we're happy to field your thoughts and and opinions on that as well. I'm looking forward to a third one. Uh, they're they're they've already reported that they're going to do a third one. Um. Where that's going to fall in the scope of the whole Infinity conflict, I'm not sure because they've already started filming on the first, um, the first Infinity film of the two that they're doing, and I know that they're pulling some, if not all, of the cast from uh, this film into that film, uh, which makes sense because again, the Infinity storyline is a cosmic storyline, and this film itself is kind of. Outside of that, there's, you know, I, I won't spoil anything. There's, like, the first film dealt directly with it. This film doesn't really deal with it at all, except for one of the uh, end credit scenes. And I won't say more than that, because if you watch the end credit scenes, you can do some research on them and find out which one it is. It should be pretty obvious. Um, and if you know anything about sort of the Infinity storyline, that character is a very important character. But I don't think that we're going to see the third film before the start of the Infinity storyline. So I guess that will be a film that 
either picks up after or is, is a separate thing, which is fine. You know, I, again, uh, bring me more of the same and I'll be happy. And, uh, you know, it's we're going to have a it'll be volume three with a new soundtrack, you know, because they do throw in something uh, along that line as well. Um, so that's all good. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. All right, you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, get in touch with us, please, at our website, concast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, please do follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing and writing about and thinking about and blogging about and everything like that. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? You can uh, follow my new site. I am at Asia in Cinema. That's uh, www.asiaincinema.com. Uh, you can see I've started updating a little more, more often. Um, uh, I'm also on Twitter. I'm at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. Uh, you can read my work on uh, Discovery Magazine uh, and Cicro Magazine on Dragon uh, Cathay Pacific Airways and Dragon Air, uh, Cathay Dragon. I, I can never let go of Dragon Air. I don't know why. <laughs> Sorry, it's Cafe Dragon. Um, you can also read my in-flight entertainment content or some of our in-flight entertainment content on uh, discovery.com. Uh, no, sorry. I think it's cathaypacific.com slash discovery. Uh, I think there is an entertainment in-flight entertainment tag on the site so you can read um, my World Film Club piece and In Flight Therapy piece uh, on the same page. You can also read a reviews by Maggie Lee and uh, also an RV article written by uh, st- some of the staff at Cathay Pacific. Um, or you can email me at uh, kevin at asiaincinema.com. All right, excellent. Our next episode, 226. Um, what do you think you're going to be talking about on the East Screen front? Uh, what did we watch last week? So we can talk about the Takeshi Kaneshiro uh, com, rom-com, uh, This Is Not What I Expected. Uh, or we can talk about uh, 29 Plus One, the film directorial debut by uh, playwright Karen Pang. So, there, yeah, we, we definitely have a few Hong Kong films uh, coming up. All right, excellent. Um, I've There's not much on the West screen side, cinema-wise, because we're kind of in the wake of Guardians of the Galaxy, and then the following week we're getting a Alien Covenant, so there's a bit of a film hiatus, but I have a couple things on tab that I may be talking about, and uh, I will, you know, confirm that uh, a little bit later as we get closer to recording date next week. But we'll have something to talk about, to be sure, so all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, I am Groot. And we'll see you next time. I am Groot. I am Groot. <laughs>